This is the Europeans, where our usual half-hour of current affairs discussion has been cancelled because this week has been too depressing. Instead, welcome to a half-hour of guided meditation, accompanied by whale noises. Oh, actually, I've just realised we can't do that because don't you find that meditation massaging music really stressful? I think you told me that once. Yeah, I do. It makes me much more stressed. Well, then we won't do that. As usual, we are going to talk through some of the major events of the week. But can we please try and make it as unmiserable as possible this week, Dominic? Because... I don't know. It just feels like there's been a really a deluge of like really crappy European news this week. Yeah, I have to say I've kind of fallen off the wagon this week and I've become totally obsessed with B word. But this half hour will be very good for me. Yeah, I know we don't usually talk about the B word on this podcast, but this has been like a particularly fraught week to be British. And then there's been loads of other rubbish stuff happening, like shootings and uh, populist victories, more of which later. I just feel like I need to breathe into a paper bag for half an hour. Yeah, I've had tummy ache for quite a lot of this week. Yeah, it's been that kind of a week. But um, we shouldn't be Debbie Downers, because in spite of all that, there's some good stuff happening. It's spring in Paris. I'm about to bake a cake. And you're in Norway. Yeah, I left the nice like spring time of Amsterdam uh, to get to windy, rainy Norway. You're in Bergen. I am in Bergen, yeah. I did at least bring an umbrella, which is good. And actually, I had a bit of an umbrella saga yesterday whilst I was travelling, um, because my bag got pulled out on security after the x-ray because they were suspicious of it because it had two umbrellas in it. <laughs> and <laughs> the woman looked at me, she was like, so you've got two umbrellas. And I was actually thrilled because I thought I only had one umbrella and I thought I'd lost the other umbrella. And it turned out it was just like hidden right at the bottom of my bag. So were you just so, smiling at her like a maniac? Yeah, I was just like, oh my God, is the other umbrella in there? And she was like, yeah, according to the x-ray machine, it is. And I was like, well, thank you. But just to get back to the original issue, I mean, is having two umbrellas like a sign of preparing a terrorist attack? I don't know. I, I find they're always suspicious of me when I have at least even one umbrella. They always want to look through it and swab it. So having two umbrellas, I think they were particularly suspicious. You could use them as weapons. My greatest ever going through the uh, scanners was at the Paris airport where like an Air France staff member had loads of saucisson in his bag and it got called up by the x-ray machine. And he had to stand up and explain why he had like this entire suitcase full of saucisson. It was an extraordinarily French moment. Um, but is it like you're in Bergen? Is it like in Ice Valley? the true crime podcast or sort of mysterious death and ice valley uh death and ice valley it's just very very gray and windy and rainy so apparently there are mountains all around us but i can't really see them so it's got the atmosphere that that podcast had definitely if you don't know what we're talking about then go back and listen to our episode of a while ago (laughs) a while ago with marit higraf she's an investigative journalist in norway and a generally awesome person Who are we talking to this week, Katie? So actually, after being a bit miserable at the top of this podcast, I actually think this week's guest is quite uplifting. Uh, Sebastian Horn is the deputy editor of Die Zeit Online, one of Germany's biggest news websites. And he is spearheading a really interesting and ambitious project uh, to get Europeans with really different political views to reach out across the divide and actually sit down and have a chat with each other. I think it's the antidote that we need in these angry, angry times. So that is coming up. But first, have you got any Thing for commemoration corner this week yes 
This week, between meetings about a little thing that we try not to talk about on this podcast, the EU was celebrating the 25th anniversary of the European Economic Area. It is an agreement which brought together the EU countries plus Iceland, Liechtenstein and Norway. This is, of course, why I'm recording from Norway this week. Oh, that's why you went. Yeah, I mean, there's also a concert, but uh, that's just a happy coincidence. It's nice to know how dedicated you are to the job. I'm very dedicated. EU leaders invited the non-EU leaders of the EEA to a summit to celebrate the Treaty of Oporto. Martin Salmeyer said on Twitter that it was a well-tested, successful model for close integration between the EU and its neighbours. And I'm not going to talk about the EEA in the context of the B word because that's not what anyone tuned into this podcast for. So let's move on. Good week, bad week, please. Good week, bad week. I should start by saying it was definitely a bad week for me because I wasn't allowed to vote in the Dutch provincial elections. Only in the water elections, which are also important, I suppose. Water elections? What is a water election? The Dutch Water Council is like one of the oldest democratic, still functioning democratic institutions in the world, I think. Huh. And obviously most of the Netherlands is below sea level, so water is quite important. Wow. It's quite a nice, quaint little thing and an important thing. I shouldn't just fetishise it. I'm glad that your vote counted. But um, tell us about these other elections that have been happening. Okay, yeah. Well, it's been a good week for Thierry Baudet, who is the Dutch populist leader of Forum for Democracy, who emerged as the biggest party in the provincial elections in the Netherlands last Wednesday. The provincial elections are particularly significant due to the fact that the elected provincial officials go on to appoint the upper chamber of parliament, the Senate. And these results were very bad for the ruling coalition parties who lost their majority in the Senate and are therefore going to have to work with opposition parties in order to get any legislation through the Senate. So the election was a further slide towards the fragmentation of the Dutch political landscape. And whilst Bardet's party got the most votes, it was still only around 14% of the total national vote. So we shouldn't blow it out of proportion. Mm. Bardet is perhaps a slightly different type of populist leader than what we've grown to expect. Uh, he's a former academic, a lover of classical music. He is also a strong believer in the differences between men and women and has some pretty disgusting views in this area, including suggestions that women want to be dominated by men. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, his meteoric success has been rather extraordinary. His party had zero seats in the previous Senate and is now going to have 13 of the 75 seats in the upper house. Does this mean that Baudet will go on to be prime minister of the Netherlands next time there's a general election? Probably not. The Dutch multi-party system seems to be able to block a populist from getting the top job, even when populists do very well. However, if a populist party like Forum for Democracy were to be the largest party in a general election, they would have the first stab at trying to form a coalition. Mm. Much of Baudet's success was stealing voters from his fellow populist, Gerrit Wilders, of the PVV party, and also from the Prime Minister's party, the PVD. But it is definitely an alarming set of results for people who are left of centre. As if you look at the right and the far right overall, they have a 
big majority over the centre-left and left-wing parties. Baudet's rise is also concerning for those who are worried about the climate. He used his rather baffling and rambling victory speech uh, to not only quote the German philosopher Hegel saying, the owl of the wise went out flying and made the whole cycle of the earth move. Wow. It's kind of strange. But he also said the following of climate change. It is a masochistic heresy, this secularized belief in the deluge that has been made the master of our time in the hearts and minds of our policymakers. It is manic and it's comparable to the cult of death that once chastised Easter Island. We must atone. That is how the power-seeking rulers of this country are parroting the ecological high priests. And then he says it's pure oikophobia. Do you know what oikophobia is? Oikophobia? Fear of... Oiks? (laughs) Oiks? <laughs> I don't know. No, it's a fear or hatred of the home. Oh. That speech is a good kind of illustration of his odd brand of populism. And indeed, he isn't simply emerging out of economic strife like many other populists do. In fact, according to polling data, he seems to mainly appeal to people whose incomes have actually risen people who aren't struggling financially necessarily. Mm. So unlike many other examples of European populism, he is benefiting from people who feel they've been left behind culturally more than economically. Are the more mainstream parties up for the challenge to fight back? We'll see. The Dutch political system prides itself on being relatively consensual and certainly nothing like as oppositional as the two-party system we have back in the UK. But when there is a party that defines itself oppositionally like his, it could be quite difficult for the other parties to find a way to react without kind of taking the bait. We'd happily welcome ideas on how to defeat the populists on a postcard. Please send them through. This is really interesting, Dominic. And thank you, because like I only really just saw the headlines, which were all like, da-da, massive populist victory, without kind of more of the nuanced stuff about like how the political system actually does kind of limit the ability of populists to gain power in Netherlands. So at least that bit is kind of heartening, even though the rest of the general situation is pretty terrifying. Um, I had never heard of this guy. And like, obviously, outside the Netherlands, if we have heard of a populist, it's Geert Wilders. Like, did this guy really just come from nowhere? Or is it just because I don't live in the Netherlands? I hadn't heard of him. No, I think he has really had a meteoric rise in the last few years. I was speaking to one of my colleagues who was like oh I have I actually have his book because he wrote a book on classical music years ago um, and he was like now I'm rather embarrassed that I've got that book but yeah lots of people wouldn't be embarrassed to have his book hey lots of people are very happy to vote for him but I, I also actually wanted to say one last thing which is a bit of good news that the green left party the Groen Links also had a good week they gained five seats to their four seats so they now have nine seats in the upper house So there was some limited good news for people who are worried about the climate and aren't far-right populists. Oh, that's good. More of a mixed week then. Yeah, let's go with that. Tell me, Katie, who's it been a bad week for? Uh, Yeah, it's not often that bad week is called upon to kind of cheer us up after a bad good week. But, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So here we are. It has been a bad week for another populist EU villain, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, because his party, Fidesz, have finally been suspended from the EPP, which is the main uh, party at the EU level, which groups together all of Europe's centre-right parties. Because let's face it, Orban is not a centre-right politician. He is a far-right politician. And increasingly, the mainstream centre-right in Europe have been saying he shouldn't be welcome around here. This is something that's been brewing for a while now, so I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour of things that Orban and his party have been doing to piss everyone else in Europe off. 
Firstly, they've kicked a really respected university, the CEU, out of Budapest because it's funded by George Soros. And they hate George Soros. What are you eating? Is that Tic Tacs? No, I'm actually having vitamin C. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you get on with that. Because I'm ill. Number two, they have stifled independent media and NGOs. And in Europe, we tend to think that healthy democracies need critical media and campaign groups to be able to operate. Thirdly, and finally, uh, recently, actually, they've been running a really virulent poster campaign against the EU itself, putting up all of these posters around Hungary, funded by the taxpayer, showing George Soros alongside EU Commission Chief Jean-Claude Juncker, and suggesting that the two of them were like in cahoots to ruin Hungary with mass migration. So, yeah, obviously Brussels was not best pleased about this. And on Wednesday, a vote was set on whether to kick Orban's party out of the EPP or not. But at the last minute, they decided to make it a vote on suspending them, not kicking them out. And apparently, interesting tidbit, it was Merkel's successor, Anna Kramp-Karrenbauer, <laughs> who brokered that compromise. I thought you meant to have learned how to say that name, Katie. I did say it. Can we just call her AKK? It's so much easier. Go with it. Apparently, it was AKK who brokered that compromise. So she is starting to kind of come out of her shell a bit and make her voice heard and not just be like a kind of mini Merkel, as some people have branded her. So they voted on suspending Fidesz from the EPP, and that suspension was backed overwhelmingly. 190 delegates from the party voted for it and just three against. In the end, the Hungarians haven't been kicked out, but they have been suspended, okay. which means that they can't go to any party meetings, they can't vote, and they can't propose any candidates for party jobs. It might sound a bit small fry, but at least it sends a message to Orban that he won't get off completely scot-free for behaving like an autocrat and for the EPP as well I think it's a positive thing yes it would have been good to kick out Fidesz altogether but at least they've come out and said this is unacceptable behavior do you think there's an argument that in some ways keeping him close like keeping him in the party will convince him to like not get even more extreme possibly but I mean I don't think it's something that he's really bothered about how he's seen by other European conservatives although again it's an interesting relationship that Hungary has with the EU because it accepts like tons of money from the EU every year so I think it's a net recipient of like three billion euros a year so they have this weird relationship where at home Orban is really happy to just slag off the EU all the time while at the same time he is kind of reliant on this relationship it's a tricky one the response from Orban to all of this is quite funny. He responded that actually his party hasn't been suspended and that what's actually happened is that Fidesz has paused its membership of the EPP, which, as friend of the show Al Yaz has put it previously, is basically like him saying, like, you can't fire me, I quit. That's great. Um, before we leave Bad Week, can I just say something about last week's Bad Week? Go on. So we were talking about the fact, or was it two weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that La Scala, the Opera House in Milan, was thinking about having this Saudi foreign minister on their board in exchange for loads of money. Oh, yeah. Well, they rejected the Saudi foreign minister in the end uh, after lots of public pressure. So I'd like to think that um, maybe it was the fact that we gave them bad weeks. So remember, we've got power, Katie. We must wield it responsibly. I actually had a question for you, Dominic. Yeah. Do you have any friends that have really different political views than you? Yes, we do, collectively. Do we? We've got a friend who's a conservative councillor. Yeah, but I mean, that's not what I consider to be really, really different. I mean, yes, like I've got friends who vote more to the right than me and more to the left than me. But like, I don't have any friends that I disagree with on broad values like, I don't know, uh, any friends who are like homophobic or friends that hate immigrants or that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? 
We need to find some of them, Katie. <laughs> Do we? I mean, this is the reason why we tend to stay in our little echo chambers, I guess. Just like talking from personal experience, the rare occasions where I come into contact with people with quite radically different views than me has been around the B word debate. I mean, everyone in England has that family member or friend of the family that voted differently. And those conversations, at least in my experience, have tended to expand into like a bigger argument about how we see the world. And I have to confess that in my experience, it hasn't gone that well. And it made me realise like just how infrequently we do get out of our kind of value bubble and talk to people that see the world differently. Yeah, you're right. And that's why this project that Sebastian Horn, who we're about to speak to, is so great and so ambitious. So his idea is to get Europeans talking to each other in the run up to the European elections. It sounded right up our alley. So we asked if he could come onto the pod and explain it to us. Sebastian, thank you for joining us. I am super excited to hear about this project and I've signed up to take part and meet someone in Europe with um, different political views than me. And I think, Dominic, you have as well, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And I'm a bit terrified. Um, I'm worried that it's going to expose that I haven't thought through all of my arguments. But I guess that's maybe partly the point. Oh, it's, no worries about the arguments. It's, it's, it's good to simply meet someone and have a coffee or have a beer and, and just have a conversation. So tell us a bit about how you got this thing set up, because actually the European version of this project is based on a national version of the same thing that you guys have already run called Germany Speaks or Deutschland Spricht. Yeah. How did it go that time? It was a crazy idea we had in 2017. This was after Brexit, um, Trump got elected, elections in France. We had elections coming up in Germany and we, we got the sense that societies are increasingly polarized and that we're not spending enough time um, talking to one another. So the crazy idea was to do something like a political Tinder, to introduce one, uh, our readers to someone else who lives nearby but has um, opposing political views. And we weren't sure if people were actually going to sign up for something like this, but uh, in the first year, 12,000 people did. So we, we quickly hacked something together and we, we matched them. And we did Germany Talks for the first time in 2017, yeah. And so you did it first time in 2017. You're now doing it on a much bigger scale, um, which I imagine comes with some complications. What did you learn the first time and how, how are you changing things this time around? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say that this, this escalated quite a bit. So, <laughs> so after the, we did it in Germany, we had lots of requests um, and messages from media organizations pretty much from all over the world saying that they, they had a similar problem in their societies and they wanted to do the same format, whether they could use our tools. But back then, there was no proper tool that they could just use. So um, early 2018, we decided to launch My Country Talks, which is a platform that um, basically anybody can use now. So we build a proper software that media organizations all over Europe and um, probably also soon in Alaska and Australia can use and they can ask readers uh, their own questions that are relevant in their countries and then um, the algorithm that we build um, is going to do the matching for these media organizations. And I think the questions that you're using to match people in Europe are really interesting. Um, just to give you a couple, it's things like, are there too many immigrants in Europe? Should we have higher taxes on gas to save the climate? Um, how did you guys go about picking these questions? Are, are these the questions that you consider to be the defining questions in Europe, in European politics today? Yeah, so Europe Talks is a huge experiment because it's, it's slightly different from the national formats that we've done that are going on in other countries because now we're matching people across borders. 
So we invited uh, 16, 17 media organizations to a workshop in Berlin, and we spent a lot of time talking about these questions because they had to be questions that are relevant in all European societies and to as many Europeans as possible. But we came up, I think, with, with enough issues. Something like border controls or immigration are obviously relevant in almost all countries. And also things like, you know, taxation on gas, so climate, um, gender questions. These questions also seem relevant. Um, and in the end, I think we had more questions that we could ask. So we ended up narrowing it down to those seven that we now have. So the idea is that you hook people up with someone in another country who has differing views to them. I imagine maybe you might have a bit of a problem because the kind of people maybe that want to do something like this are also on the progressive pro-European side of things, or am I wrong in that assumption? Um, we'll see when we when we look at the, at the data. I think um, what they do have in common is a certain willingness to talk to someone else. So they need to be at least open to that idea. Although I, I think that with Europe Talks, I mean, lots of people are motivated by simply their curiosity to meet someone else for another country, which um, seems to be a big factor in, in any of the My Country Talks events, that people are just really curious to go on this blind date and meet meet a total stranger for a discussion, you know? And how are these blind dates going to work on a practical scale when you're doing things on such a, a massive scale? So, like, in linguistic terms, we're going to have people matching who don't necessarily speak the same language. Yeah. How's that going to work? Yeah, so language is... <laughs> Europe is really tricky. (laughs) We discovered that really quickly when we came up with, uh, in terms of developing the product. We at some point thought that we were going to translate the tool into 27 different languages because there are lots of emails going out to people. They when they sign up and when they're matched and when they're introduced to one another. But eventually, I mean, simply because we're running out of time, we had to say that the sign-ups, so the questions you answer, they're going to be in the national languages. But all the emails and also later on the conversations will have to be in English. We also thought about matching based on languages. So we would ask people what languages are you capable of speaking and then we would match Polish-speaking people with Polish-speaking people in Germany. Um, But all of that just got a bit too complicated too quickly. So this time around we had to say, okay, please be aware that this is probably going to be in English. Um, We know that that will exclude a few people or a lot. depending on the country, um, but I think it's a good start for this year. And in terms of the meetup themselves, I guess a lot of them will have to happen like on Skype or on the phone somehow, if people are living really far away? We're encouraging people to actually make the effort and, and travel. Also from a journalistic point of view, that those are obviously the stories that we're hoping for, that somebody from Sicily is actually going to get on a plane and go up to Austria, for example. We try to match people who are geographically not too far away, as often as that is possible. But yes, everybody um, who cannot travel or doesn't want to travel or isn't just doesn't want to travel on that day, they can get on Skype and we're going to tell people, you know, how to set up a video chat. You might even get some people that are ideologically opposed to traveling <laughs> based on that climate change question. Who knows? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they don't have to. Even, they could meet in the middle. I think uh, once you start thinking about it, um, there are many ways now to travel across Europe. And I'm positive that a lot of people are actually going to do it on May 11th, which is when all the meetings are going to take place. So are you going to be listening in on any of those conversations? On a few, yeah. Most of them are just going to happen without any any journalists or reporters being there. But um, we will contact some of the matches, asking them if it's okay that we interview them before and after. We, We normally don't listen in on the conversation per se. 
so people can have you know have their conversation in private. We're also going to do um, a big event in, in Brussels on May 11th, where we're going to invite a few hundred of the participants and ask them to have their conversation right there, which is an amazing thing. We did the same thing for Germany Talks last year in Berlin. And when you see, let's say, a hundred of these couples, you know, have a political conversation all in the same room at the same time, it feels like democracy, you know, being alive right there. Oh, that's really nice. Um, I have a broader question about why this project is necessary. The media organizations who are involved in this, one of the things they seem to agree on is that political discourse everywhere in Europe, the same as in America, has become unpleasant, like really deeply unpleasant, mm -hmm. which a lot of us agree has something to do with the rise of the internet. What is it about the way that society has changed and the rise of the internet that has unleashed that, do you think? My personal opinion on this is that at the most fundamental level, what we're doing is we're inviting people to have a conversation with someone new, right? Someone they don't know. Leaving out for a moment just like the, the whole political aspect of it or the democracy aspect of it, simply to sit down and people sit down for hours. Like my dad participated and he met someone, they talked like five hours. That seems to be a rare thing these days, right? That we actually just go out and have a conversation with someone else who, who lives next door. I mean, how many people know their next door neighbors, right? There's value for me in, in that. Um, and then obviously in the political dimension, I can say this first on this podcast, we just got the preliminary results yesterday. We had a scientific study for Germany Talks last year, <clears throat> and we got the results and they show that it makes people more tolerant, more understanding of other people's point of view when they have these one-on-one -on -one meetings. So it does seem to be a really good way of um, helping people to have empathy for people who think differently. Will you be giving uh, the participants any kind of guide or steer in terms of what kind of terms or topics of the debate uh, they should be covering? We don't. We tell them, you know, that the questions that they answer when they sign up, that's a good starting point. But we're, we're not telling them that they have to go through these, you know, a list of 10 things and then come up with a joint statement in the end. From what we heard in the past, there are different ways that these can go. Some of them are, um, they go through all the questions and they kind of like say, check, we answer that one, check, we disagree on that one. And then they kind of report back to us how it went. Um, some people get stuck on one question and talk about that. And, and, and some people talk about something else entirely. So we don't want to, you know, limit them in any way in what they talk about. I think it's an amazing project. I mean, as, as Brits, Dominic and I are both British, and definitely when Brexit, when the referendum happened, it was really this moment for me where I thought, oh my God, I exist in this little bubble of people who all seem to think the same way that I do. Mm. And I just wondered, has there ever been a moment for you like that where you realised that? It's definitely true that, that like in my everyday life when the colleagues I'm surrounded by, the my friends and family, that, that, that we tend to have very similar political opinion. Um, and I, the closest I probably get to having an argument with someone who thinks differently is with my parents. That's when you realize, okay, people really do think differently. Or the, for journalists, it's always the, the cab driver, right, the, that you have the discussion with. with. The classic. <laughs> yeah, it's the classic one. But those things, do, or the, the hairdresser or whatever, those things do tend to happen. But um, I definitely like, don't make the effort enough to, to listen to these people over a longer period of time. Well, I think it's really great that you, uh, you've started this and I'm really interested to see what results you get from it. And I'm interested to have a conversation myself and slightly terrified, but uh, I'm sure. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Let us know how it goes. People who want to sign up, they can go to europetalks.org and that's where they find all the information. Great. Go and do it, people. Be brave like me and Katie. <laughs>
as mentioned, the project is called Europe Talks. It is super easy to sign up for it. All you have to do is answer a few quick questions about how you feel about the world. You also have to describe yourself in three words, which I found quite difficult. Oh, yeah. What did you choose? I don't want to talk about it publicly because <laughs> I was, I felt really embarrassed by every word I put down. Handsome, intelligent, charming. Bubbly, lovable. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't use either of those words. Well, they would have been accurate. FYI. Um, can you all, listeners, please let us know if you actually get picked to go and meet someone? Because, Dominic, I just have a sneaking suspicion that we're not going to get picked somehow. Do you think? Yeah, I think they want more kind of people who are a bit more cool. Speak for yourself. As a happy ending, I bring you happy news from Norway, where a woman has won the Mathematic World's equivalent of a Nobel Prize for the first time. Karen Kaskula Ulenbeck of the University of Texas won the Abel Prize, or Abel Prize, and had it handed over by the King of Norway. Ulenbeck was awarded for the fundamental impact of her work on analysis, geometry, and mathematical physics. One of her most important areas of research has been around the rather odd topic of soap bubbles. Eh? As we've clarified before on this podcast, I don't understand math, so I'm not even going to attempt to describe what her research around soap bubbles does. I'm just going to enjoy that. Is it about real soap bubbles or is it is soap bubbles some kind of mathematical term? No, no, it's actually about like the ratios or I'm just using math words now. Uh, it's to do with the surface, the energy and the surface lev- space. <laughs> okay. Can we cut this bit? Glad that we cleared that up. No, I'm not cutting it. Oh. Um, but apparently soap bubbles are just like magical and she noticed and uh, and that has led to loads of research on things that aren't only to do with soap bubbles. Apparently it's also relevant to electrical fields. Ooh. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about maths. Um, but Ullenbeck has been involved with various efforts to make the male-dominated maths world more friendly for women. And she said in an essay in 1996... We were told that we couldn't do math because we were women. But I liked doing what I wasn't supposed to do. It was sort of a legitimate rebellion. And that rebellion seems to have paid off for Karen. Congrats on breaking another glass ceiling and go and enjoy your 6 million Norwegian kroner, which is about 600,000 euros. Wow, that's a lot of moolah. It is a lot of moolah, isn't it? Congrats, Karen. I like to think of Karen like relaxing in a really nice bath to congratulate herself but then just like counting all the bubbles and like maybe coming up with some new theories while she's doing it i like the idea that her soap bubble research is about counting how many bubbles there are (laughs) that's the kind of math you can do (laughs) we're not going to be here next week unfortunately because we're doing something exciting in amsterdam that we can't actually tell you about wait can we tell them anything about it no Nothing. Okay. We remain tight-lipped. All become clear in several months' time. It's all very exciting mysterious. In the meantime, if you like the show and you want to throw something into the tip jar, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Our little Patreon fund is continuing to take over the world. This week, special thanks go out to Julie Jamo in Paris. Thank you, Julie. 
She now gets to join the elite club of Patreon supporters who get access to our secret Facebook group. Mostly, where mostly we just seem to force our listeners to give us ideas. Oh yeah, and I should have said, in fact, that my wonderful, if I say so myself, my wonderful happy ending this week came from an idea from one of our lovely listeners. On Patreon? Yeah, from Anne Yoroch. Oh, thanks, Anne. I think we've actually sourced ideas from Anne before, so... Should we just let the listeners do the podcast from now on? Yeah. We probably should. Anyway, I've got to go and rehearse, Katie. Okay, I've got to go and make a cake. So we'll see everyone in two weeks' time. Have a great couple of weeks, and in the meantime, see you on the internet. Harder. Peace, lads.